Amen, 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 amen. Okay. Uh, we're going to Matthew 27 this evening. Matthew 27. And we're going to just jump straight in to the text. Verse 32. As they went out, this is the Jesus and the soldiers heading up towards uh, Calvary. They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Uh, they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. (laughs) He can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We come to our fourth word in our series of the seven words of the cross. So far we've seen the word of forgiveness, the word of salvation. This morning we looked at the word of affection. Tonight we come to perhaps the most difficult of the phrases. I've called it the word of anguish because that's exactly what it is. Having hung in silence for three hours, it's now about three o'clock in the afternoon. It's midday. The heat of the Middle Eastern sun is shining down and Jesus cries with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Now, this verse has caused a lot of people a lot of difficulty down through the years. Uh, Martin Luther, one of the founding fathers of the Protestant faith, when he read it, that he, he read it over and over and over and over and over and over again to the point where he went into seclusion to meditate on it, to try and understand that when he came out of seclusion, he says, I'm worse off now than when I went in. He, he, he couldn't get his head wrapped around this. And there's so many profound questions asked around this cry from the Lord, and most of them come from that word, why? Did he not know why? Did he forget why in becoming sin? Did he lose track of why? Or was he simply unexpected, uh, not expecting just the sheer weight and pain and suffering? that it would be to become sin. I'm going to try and plot a way through some of those issues indirectly. Um, I'd, I'm, going to far rather, I'm going to spend my time talking about what is happening rather than what's not happening. So, Ultimately, though, what I'm trying to do this evening with this is, is build uh, two prongs, all right? uh, uh, kind of two pointers to get to one central point. And... I'm going to tell you what I'm going to get to now so it, you're, you, know, you, you can stay with me. And I, I need you to stay with me in this one uh, to come through to it. 
But ultimately, what I want to try and do is build uh, up and encourage you with the fact that God was never out of control in this moment. God was never out of control. God was never out of control. And that means whenever you are your lowest, whenever you are struggling, whenever you don't know what's happening and it feels like evil is winning, I want you to be able to look at the cross and look at this phrase and acknowledge that, yes, it is hard, but God is still in complete control. That's, that's what we're trying to build to tonight. So let me start with the practical prong. Have you ever felt forsaken by God? Have you ever felt that he's turned his back on you? Have you ever felt that he has betrayed you? I don't know what has maybe gone on, but maybe you felt so let down, so abandoned, so betrayed, and God is going to get all of the blame on this one. Because whenever you needed him the most, he wasn't there. And what happens is one of two things happens here. And you come to either one of two conclusions. Either he makes promises that he is unable to keep, which means he's weak. Or he makes promises that he had no intention of keeping, which makes him cruel. And we fall into the trap of making one of these two conclusions. Either he's a weak God, not worthy of my praise, or he's cruel, and he's definitely not worthy of my love. Maybe it's a rough breakup, or it's money problems, a divorce, a bereavement, whatever it is, and you think, if God really is sovereign, then he wouldn't wish this. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. And you multiply that one event over a thousand cumulative experiences as we grow and we get older in a broken and fallen world full of broken and fallen people and imperfect churches and imperfect Christians and each one pushes us closer and closer and closer to cry out, Why, God? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? And we can easily descend down a path where we're the victim and God is completely to blame. In those moments, I would like to remind you of five things that God would, would say to us if you're feeling forsaken, that he has let us down. Number one, he says, I still love you. Imagine an abusive and distant father who 10, 15 years later reunites with his son who had run away with his mom and forged a new life together. The father is now a Christian, he's a believer, and he is trying to make things right with the son. His son is in trouble, and so he reaches out to his son, and the son turns to him and says, Oh, you're trying now? <laughs> You're trying now after all this time. Where were you when it mattered, Dad? Where were you when I needed you, Dad? I needed you whenever I was a kid. I don't need you now. Everything's already happened. You're too late, Dad. Might be difficult to find a more apt description for how we can feel sometimes with God during intense suffering. Heavenly Father, <laughs> oh, it's all good whenever the worship service and the music's going. Monday to Saturday, it's not so much. But of course, 
That's not a fair comparison. God doesn't come and go like the tide in our lives. He doesn't make mistakes and then try to make it up to you like a dad trying to put things right. That's not how God is. Everything that God does comes from a place of love. Even if it's hard to believe or wrap your head around, right now, because of circumstances, he is not an abusive father. He is loving. If there's one adjective that accompanies God's love more than any other and through all of Scripture, it's the word steadfast. He has a steadfast love. He's not inconsistent. He's not unreliable. And he is not removed uh, a song that had been done the rounds for a while and uh, it tends to be African choirs to sing it. I don't know why but uh, I've always heard African choirs sing it and it's uh, from a distance from a distance God is watching from it it's a nice song but it's completely wrong Comple- God is not distant he's not removed I think that's one of the most important things you need to hear. When you feel that God has betrayed you, start with the facts. No, no, but God loves me with a steadfast, unshakable, unchanging love. Number two, I think God we want to say to you, okay, I know you feel that I'm betraying you, but I know your pain. Remember that betrayal is not something uncommon in the life of Jesus. He too was betrayed by a loved one. Whenever he was ministering, his, his brothers and, and, and were embarrassed by him and tried to pull him off the side and said, Jesus, you're, stop it. Betrayal. And then, of course, Judas, one of his inner 12, sold him out for a bit of cash to death. Jesus knows exactly what it feels like to be betrayed. Number two in that, he also knows exactly how you feel. Psalm 56, I think, just sums it up so well. You keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected my tears in a bottle. You record each one. Every single tear that you have cried, he knows about it and has recorded it. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me every tear matters to God. Every tear that you've shed, it matters to God. It matters. So not only is he familiar with betrayal, he's very much concerned about how you are feeling right now. Which maybe makes number three a wee bit hard to, to hear. I did allow this to happen to you. It's maybe easy to say something like, oh, well, this couldn't have been God's plan. There's no way a loving, compassionate, understanding God would have wanted this to happen. And what happens is, in that moment, we allow our emotions to override the authority of Scripture. God uh, tells us in his word, I am on my throne, seated in heaven. The, The sky is just like my sandals. Don't you worry about me. I don't need anything from anyone. I am God. But we allow our emotions to maybe override that and say, well, maybe God isn't in control here. It's important to remind ourselves God is still in control. Ephesians 1.11 talks about having been predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
He works all things, and the things that you're thinking about, He works those things in accordance to His will. He allowed this thing to happen to you. And even when we are in agony, Scripture is still true. God is still on the throne, which means that a loving, compassionate God must have a real reason and a real purpose for taking you through the storm that you are currently in. If he is so loving and he is so compassionate that we see that he is, then he must have a really good reason for it, which tells me that what you are going through is not meaningless. And what I would say is that not only is your affliction temporary in light of eternity, not only is your affliction light in view of eternity, but it is also meaningful. It's not an accident, but every single millisecond of your pain and misery in the path of obedience is producing in you a peculiar glory. Whether it's cancer or criticism or slander or sickness, there's a reason. Um, you, we may not be able to see the whole picture. In fact, we definitely can't see the whole picture. But that doesn't mean it's meaningless. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore, do not lose hope. And our loving and sympathetic and understanding God who keeps track of every one of our tears that is shed and his sovereign power is asking you to keep trusting him because it's worth it. Number four, it may get worse before it gets better. I know you didn't want that to be number four. I know that was the last thing you wanted to come up on the screen. See, I think most, maybe every well-meaning Christian wants to make the promise, this too shall pass. Maybe you've said it to someone. Maybe you've had it said to you. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. Tim Keller, a pastor who I thoroughly enjoy, said that the notion that God will certainly end your suffering in this life is not only misinformed, but incorrect. But it's also an insult to the billions for whom God does not end many multiple forms of suffering. For those here on Thursday night, when we were talking about the persecuted church, we saw that living for Christ makes life more difficult. And it doesn't just mean that it's going to be hard for a night or two or for a week or two, but there's Christians around the world, one in nine, living in fear, simply because they choose. And that's their life. And so the key in this life is not, uh, the key to getting through in this life is not just spiritual assurance, but also spiritual reality. We need reality. We may wish Job's friends were right, where if we are good, God blesses, and if we're bad, God punishes, and that's the only thing that needs to factor in. And if we just start being good, then things will turn around, and if we start slipping, then things will get bad, and we can then have control on how good or how bad our life is. At least then we'd have hope to change things ourselves. At least then there'd be substance to the weight that God has let us down or betrayed us. 
But the thing about betrayal assumes that there's been a broken contract. There's been terms of the agreement that haven't been met. And as much as we want to include our comfort and our leisure in God's promises to us, it's not what God has promised us. It's not part of the deal. We've been tricked by Western living and by our own flesh. The truth is that God never gives us a promise to be comfortable in this life or that life will be leisurely for us or circumstantial for us. In fact, God groans with us. This is not how this world ought to be. Galatians 1 says that he came to save us from this world. God didn't come to save the world, but to save us from the world. Galatians 1, 5, I think it is. Then what use is God to your suffering if he ordains it and doesn't promise that it will end? Matthew 26, the previous chapter to the crucifixion, Jesus says, put your sword away. Put your sword back into its place, Peter, for all those who take the sword will perish by the sword. Put sword away. Now, I think it was maybe two years ago, um, that took a real, that really hit home to me, that verse. Because instinctively, I want to say, I want to fight. I'm going to take on that challenge. If there's a war to fight, there's diseases to cure, there is back pain to deal with, there, there's things to happen. So let's fight. Let's take action. Let's do, let's do, let's do. And, and if it's getting harder, then let's do even more because that's bound to fix everything. We look at Demas in Second Timothy and we, we watch very carefully Second Timothy 4 says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He walked away. And we look at that, and it looks like such an easy road out of suffering. Thessalonica doesn't sound so bad, but remember, wherever we go or whatever, uh, we go with Newton Arts or Thessalonica, or deeper into our own shells, or away from the church. Anywhere but God's face. We go anywhere but God's face, we will carry our tears with us, we'll carry our burdens with us. And we carry suffering in our hearts, and we'll find someone else to blame. We'll take it out on ourselves, we'll take it out on a friend, we'll take it out on our spouse, we'll take it out on our children, we'll take it out on God. And Jesus put down the sword. Stop fighting everything. Stop resting in yourself. This life is a life of tears because we live in a world of sin. And one day, every Thessalonica is going to be burnt up with the chaff. And God, the one that we blame, will be the one, the only one, the only one who is going to be there to wipe away our tears. And the promise in Revelation 21, something that we can hold on to. Maybe not in this life, but in heaven. He will wipe away those tears. And there will be no more death. 
and no more mourning and no more crying and no more pain. That's the promises for heaven, not for earth. Don't confuse the two. The fifth promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. God never felt more abandoned by God than you or I ever will. When Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of the death of Jesus on the cross, we will never experience that same abandonment that he experienced in that moment. We may experience those Judas-like moments whenever people betray us and hurt us. We might experience those Demas moments when people walk away whenever we expected them and invested in them and hoped that they would stay, and they go, and they walk away, and they abandon We might experience hurt in, or maybe especially in, the church. Most people who struggle to believe God is good have been deeply hurt by a church. And the church hasn't necessarily been very good at dealing with that and being honest with themselves about that. But Jesus never abandons us. Matthew 28, the, the, the next chapter after the crucifixion, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. That promise might feel a little bit flat for you at the moment. It feels like it flirts with belittling some of our serious feelings. Then don't cheapen what I'm going through. Don't minimize how I'm feeling. We rummage through our sin to find the reason why God has abandoned us. And we present God with the de deposition. <laughs> Here are the facts, God. You failed as a provider. You failed as a shepherd. You failed as a father. How could you possibly be here? How could you possibly be in this with me? You left me. But he never leaves. He doesn't go. He hasn't failed. He stays. That's why the steadfastness of his love is so important. He offers us only one perspective on our pain, an eternal perspective. And if he doesn't change your circumstances for the worse or for the better, that is from him. It's bitter and sweet. And God scripts the bitter herbs into our diet on this earth. Some people will get more than others. We can only wait and pray for mercy and the strength we need for whatever comes or remains. But what we will have is a God who will be with us through it all. Now that's the first prong. For those of you who maybe feel at some point forsaken by God. But let's go back to Jesus who makes that same claim. And because we believe that everything he says is true, then we're looking at someone who has been forsaken by God. Why? Why was he forsaken? He was forsaken 
so that you and I would never have to be forsaken. That, that's the, the small, short, simple answer. That's the one that you can write down on your, your notepads or on the top of your page. Or on the, he was forsaken, so you don't have to be forsaken. That we would never, ever have to feel the way that he felt. As Christ became sin for our sake, the Father could no longer look on him. As predicted in Isaiah 53, he turns his face away and, Isaiah, and Jesus bore the sin upon himself, our sin, and God the Father turns away. Now, this is something that Jesus never experienced before. He knew that it was... He knew what it was like to be abandoned. We've talked about that with Judas and, and, and even this morning with the thousands of people becoming 12 people, becoming 11 people, becoming three, becoming just a handful at the cross. And we think about how Jesus was taken off to be carted and paraded between people on these farces of trials. And John and Peter follow him, and Peter denies him, and John was left, but eventually the Bible says that all the disciples fled and forsook him. And although people have forsaken him, Jesus never had experienced the Father leaving him until this moment on the cross. Now, as the weight of sin was placed upon him, The father turns his face away for that moment and Jesus felt it and then said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fulfilling the word said in Psalm 22, the verse, the Psalm that we read this morning in church. One crucial, crucial, crucial thing to remember about these words are the fact that they are from Psalm 22. And that is important because Jesus seems to have known that the whole psalm, in one way or another, is about him. At least three other parts of the psalm are quoted in the story of his death. I have them up on the screen. Verse 1 and 2, why have you forsaken me? Um, Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Those are the words uh, from Matthew 27, verse 39. All those who pass by derided him, wagging their heads. To show that the psalm is being played out. Remember, Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. And so he's pointing back to the psalms and saying, see, this wasn't accidental. This isn't coincidental. This is all part of the plan. Verse 16 of the psalm we read, they have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and my clothing they've cast lots. And so the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is part of the psalm that contains the script for Jesus' final hours. And so a couple of things I need you to understand about this cry of anguish. Just a couple of things. Number one, yes, he was truly abandoned. There was a real forsakenness. That is why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's why it means that's really what happened. It isn't a metaphor. It isn't a simile. It isn't some sort of picture of something else. This is really what happened. He was forsaken. He is bearing our sin. He bore our judgment. Up to this point, the narrative of the crucifixion, it's all focused on the physical pains and sufferings of Jesus, the flogging and the thorns and the, um, the nails and the hands and the feet and the, the crowd laughing and jeering and 
Six hours have passed now since the nails were driven into his hands, since the crowds were at fervency. Darkness has covered the land. And now suddenly after a long silence comes this anguished cry from the depths of our Savior's soul. The words are an Aramaic tinged quotation of Psalm 22. Now Matthew and Mark both offer a translation for the benefit of their Gentile readers and so you've got it in different languages. But here at the lowest ebb, his mind instinctively breathes the psalmist and from it he takes the words that express the anguish not now of his body but of his soul. The judgment was to have God the Father pouring out his wrath. And instead of pouring it out on us, he pours it out on him. That necessarily involves a type of abandonment. That's what wrath means. That's what it is. He gave him up to suffer the weight of all the sins of all the people and the judgment for those sins. We can't be to fathom all that this would mean between the Father and the Son. To be forsaken by God is the cry of the damned. It's a cry that can only be heard in hell. And he was damned for us. And so he used these words because there was a real forsakenness. That's the first reason. The second one, he cried out, Why? Why, to me, is a question that's not looking for an answer, but a way of just expressing the horrors of that abandonment, of that separation from God. I have a couple of reasons for thinking like that. Number one, Jesus knew ahead of time what was happening to him and what was going to happen. His father had sent him for this, for this very moment, and he, had come, and he agreed to come, knowing all that would happen. Listen to the words of um, John 18, uh, John 18 verse 4 says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to the arresting soldiers, Whom do you seek? Jesus, knowing all that would happen. Another reason that he cried out was in agony, not curiosity, not asking a, a theological question. The moment was one of agony not despair. Despair would have been to sin. Even in the darkness, God was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The son is still saying, you are my God. You are my God. This wasn't doubt on the heart of the Savior. This is agony. And though the pain obscured the promises, somewhere in the depths of his soul, there remained the assurance that God was holding him. Like Abraham and Isaac going up to Mount Moriah, he and the Father had gone up to Calvary together, but now Abba, God the Father, is not there any longer. Only El is there, God Almighty, God All-Holy, and he is before El, not now as the Son, but as the sin of the world. That is his identity, the character in which he stands before the absolute integrity of the universe. It's not that he bears some vague relation to sinners. He is numbered with the transgressors. Indeed, he is all of them. He is sin, condemned to bear its curse, and he has no cover. There's no one to carry that burden from, no one to lighten that load, no one to ease the suffering. 
He must bear all. And El, holy God, will not, cannot spare him until the ransom is paid in full. Third one. He knows how Psalm 22 ends. He's conscious of how the story is going to end. He's not asking the question because he wonders what's going to happen if him and the Father are going to be reunited in fellowship at some point. It's the opposite. He cries in pain, but quoting the psalm, he knows how the psalm ends. Let me read Psalm 22, verses 22 and 24 to you. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you, you who fear the Lord praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. In other words, the psalm ends with this note of triumph. Jesus isn't curious, wondering how this is going to turn out for me. He has embedded in his soul both the horrors of the moment, the horrors of the abandonment, and embedded in his soul the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. Maybe in his head he thought, God will not despise me in the end but we will be reunited. At some level, he knows that it's not the final cry or an ultimate cry. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, and the why is not a request for a theological answer. It's just a cry of desolation with words that were second nature because his whole life is scripted by God. Which means, number three, it was all according to the plan. And I think the last reason we should say that this is this psalm, Psalm 22, is his life crying out uh, just in agony in these words. The psalm shows that as horrible as it is, it was all going according to plan. It was all going according to plan. All of it was the fulfillment of Scripture. Even the worst of it is the fulfillment of Scripture. That moment was probably the worst moment in the history of the world as the one who is totally innocent dies a sinner's death. And it was scripture-filled and scripture-fulfilling. It was part of the plan. So let me take the two parts now that we've talked about together. Whenever you feel that you have been forsaken by God and what he would tell you whenever you feel forsaken, and we'll take the forsakenness of Jesus who died so that we would not have to die such a death. And let me tie these things together. Christ was forsaken so that we would never have to be if we are saved. But also, if God the Father is in total control during the worst thing that ever happened to our Savior, and it was all done, even still all done according to Scripture, and God is still faithful to His Word in those moments... How much can we be comforted by the fact that he is doing something with our suffering? That, that, that it means something. He is doing something in our trials. He is doing something. He's doing something. It's not meaningless. Because he's faithful. We can point to the worst moment in history and see that God is still in control. 
So we can point to any moment in our lives and we may not be able to see it yet. We may not understand it all yet. But we can say with a confidence that stems from the cross, God is still in control. His promises are still good. And the cross is a perfect place to be reminded of this truth. Easter reminds me that God's perspective is infinitely greater than mine. Much of what is really happening is unseen. And while it may look otherwise in the moment, Satan will never be victorious. Evil cannot win. God always has the last word. And what Satan may mean for evil, God means for good, always. And if you ever feel forsaken and have no idea where to turn or what to do, trust that God is using that very struggle If life looks a hopeless mess and every day is a fight to survive, trust that God will one day gloriously prevail. And when he has, when you're on the other side, trust that God will have done an incomparable work in your soul. Then you'll have learned how to rely on him, to truly rely on him on a God who brings beauty from ashes. Your life, your walk with God will be more beautiful than you could ever have imagined. And somehow, through your pain, you will be transformed. And whenever that happens and you see how God has been working in your life, you'll never want to go back to the way it was before. And you'll understand that nothing can thwart God's plans for you. And what now appears to be evil will result in your eternal joy. And the staggering triumph of the cross will hit you with a renewed power. Folks, I'm not going to pretend that I know everything that is going on with you. But what I do know is that if he is in control in the lowest moment of history when the greatest injustices were being done I know that he is still in control whatever is going on there with you. And anything that you may want to say says, oh but Jeff you don't listen I may not understand but what I do know is that nothing is bigger than the injustice that went on on the cross. And nothing is going to be more powerful or bigger that can outdo the cross. And so we can look to Jesus, we can look to God, and we can trust that even in the storm, He is doing something. It is not meaningless. He has not forsaken you. Because Christ was forsaken so we would not have to be. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. We're going to sing a song, and then uh, I'll come back and we'll close in prayer. Let's pray. And let's sing, and then we'll pray. Let's have it on Sunday night.
just before we pray, just to let